Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman. This week on the podcast, we interviewed Paul Moore, who runs a real estate business called Wellings Capital. And one of the great things about this show is not just being in the trenches and talking with somebody in the same life stage, but getting to talk with people like Paul Moore and getting to hear his wisdom from a career in investing and specifically in real estate. On today's episode, we talk a little bit about Paul's background. He shares some interesting insight into uh, investing and risk and how he thinks about risk tolerance. We also do a compare and contrast about stocks and bonds and real estate and the pros and cons of each and how they can all fit together in a proper financial plan. So be sure to check out this full episode with my good friend, Paul Moore. Mr. Paul Moore, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thanks, John. I'm really excited. Paul, you've got a terrific background and I look at you and, and all of your experience and sharing with us today from a mentorship standpoint. Um, you've got a lot of experience, maybe some engineering background and entrepreneurial spirit and a lot of experience within real estate, specifically even doing being, a lot of activity within the bigger pockets platform. I'm excited to talk about a number of these things today and, and talk a little bit about how my listeners can educate themselves more on real estate investing. But can you start, Paul, give us some background on the arc of your career and some of the activities you've been involved in? Well, why would you want to hear from somebody who has a podcast called How to Lose Money? Come on, John. That's, that sounds perfect. The irony. That's terrific. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we actually do have a wealth building podcast called How to Lose Money. And that's where I interview successful entrepreneurs, investors, business owners about the failures they all had in their past that helped them on their path to success today. So we have a lot of fun there. Fascinating. Yeah. That's probably a good thing. There's uh, countless stories. And actually, the failures might be more instrumental to hear, right? They really are. Everybody says that nobody likes to go through it. But later, they realize that they learned more from that failure yeah. than they did from uh, all the successes. But anyway, uh, yeah, I had an engineering degree. Then I got an MBA. and I went to Ford Motor Company for five years, had a great time there. But I had this constant itch to do something entrepreneurial. So I looked at all these different business opportunities. After five years at Ford, I launched a company with my buddy who was a couple of years ahead of me in the same uh, business. And we did the staffing firm. Uh, I had the um, honor of being entrepreneur, excuse me, finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year in Michigan a couple of years in a row. And then we sold the company to a publicly traded firm that everything was just serendipitous and we sold in five years. And uh, I found myself kind of semi-retired at age 33. I didn't know the first thing about what I was doing with my time. I thought I was going to be a great husband and father and lead this nonprofit organization. Instead, I became the worst version of myself as a husband and father. I'm 33 or 4 then, and I was bored. And uh, I thought I was an investor. 
And I actually wasn't an investor. I didn't know the first thing about investing, John. And um, years later, I look back on that time and I realized, you know, I wasn't an investor. I was a speculator. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And, and, and speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And it's fine to speculate as long as you really know what you're doing. And I would also add my opinion, and that is that you only do that with a small percentage of your capital. You know, we all love the stories of the, of the guy, the Stanford professor who put in 100000 into Facebook or Google, whichever it was, and now that's worth a billion or whatever, and all those great stories. But, you know, those stories are so legendary because they're so rare. Great point. You know, 99.99% of people who speculate, you know, don't end up there and a lot of them lose their money. And if you keep playing double or nothing with all of your capital, you'll end up with nothing at some point. You'll have nothing left to double. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> kind of yeah. like Paul Samuelson said, he's the first Nobel Prize winner in economics from the US. He said, investing, true investing, should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. That's great. Yeah. I, I appreciate that you separating out investing versus speculating. And those are really important definitions for all of us to understand, especially for many of the listeners who might fall into this uh, 30 to 48 age range and they're very much in a building mindset. And it's tempting to see the stories like you alluded to, but those those are stories of speculation, not of, of pure investing. Let, yeah. let me take you back to that point where you had sold the staffing company. And for, for many, that they might look at that as, wow, what a tremendous success. But you said that was one of the worst versions of yourself. Yeah. Just a, a, a curious to hear a little bit more insight into that. How did those scenarios come to be if uh, on the surface, mm -hmm. it sounds like you were a tremendous early success. Yeah, I wasn't prepared for I mean, I didn't really think of it as retirement. I thought about moving into, you know, like starting this nonprofit, we were doing all this, but I didn't know anything, like I said, about uh, protecting my money about growing it slowly. You know, Warren Buffett was asked, why don't more people just copy you? you, you it, it's pretty simple what you do. I think Mark Zuckerberg asked him that and he said, oh no, people won't copy me. No one wants to get rich that slow. And so funny. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. Wow. And so I, I mean, I, I would just, you know, I would throw all the money I had available down to the bottom of an oil of an oil well. And that's a real story. And a bunch of my friends joined me and, um, you know, we lost it all. And, uh, talk about just, a learning experience. Yeah. But I mean, we had the chance to make a hundred X, right? So that was really exciting. You know, a lot of investors look at their investing like they do as an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are super optimistic. They always see the positives. Investors need to ask three questions. Number one, what's the upside? And we all really good at that. And we're all focused and camped on that. But smarter investors and people who have lost money in the past start asking a second question. That is, what's the downside? And then yeah. the very smartest investors ask a third question, and that is, can I live with that downside? And uh, I didn't ask those questions back in those days. And so I had the pleasure of starting over a few times. <laughs> I had read this 
through your bio that at one point you had a, a, a nice piece of change in your pocket with a couple of zeros behind it. And that swung almost the other side of the, yeah. the, the, the direction into yeah, some, it, not just an asset, but debt. So yeah. would you be open to sharing a little bit about what that experience was like? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I went from, uh, I think it was about almost 2 million in the bank in 1997 to two and a half million in debt in uh, exactly a decade later in the fall of uh, in the fall of 2007 and of course and it's really important to keep this in mind we only we only know now how bad the great recession was at the time we could only look forward and guess uh, maybe we're over the worst of this so it was like December of 2007 I'm hoping we're through the worst of this and of course we hadn't even started for what was coming. Started? Yeah, oh, and that um, sounds that sounds excruciating. <laughs> yeah, so I was sitting in my chair one morning, and I did this morning meditation practice, and I was actually thinking, what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller was this guy from Germany in the 1820s. He was this hellion, and he moved to England, and he became like more of a saint. He actually became like a pastor, and he started orphanages, and he actually cared for, I think they, his group cared for like 10,000 orphans over the next century. But anyway, he did it all with all these really unconventional methods. And, and, and so I actually thought, what would George Mueller do? Well, first thing, he would never be in debt, not even $1, not at all. Mm -hmm. So I was already in trouble. But if George Mueller did find himself $2.5 million in debt, what would he do? And I thought, well, he would probably give his way out of debt. So for time's sake, I know we have a lot to cover here. I'll just tell you that I went to my family and friends who were in, my friends were encouraging me to declare bankruptcy. And one of my, my business partner, basically December that year also bowed out. He said, I can't pay half this interest anymore. I'm hand, I'm signing all the properties we have over to you. Good luck. And uh, we're still good friends today, but you know, that's what happened. And so I said, well, fine, that's I'll, I'll take that. And uh, anyway, so I told my family and friends, I'm going to give my way out of debt. So we started giving a very significant chunk of money every week to some nonprofits and uh, our church and things like that. And uh, we did that every week, once a week. Mm -hmm. And in starting January 1st, 2008, we were already giving in general, but we made it much, much more deliberate. Okay. And then the last week in January, four weeks into this, I had this crazy idea that just dropped out of nowhere okay. based on a comment that a real estate developer made. And yes. I went down to the county uh, planning and zoning people uh, two days later. I proposed this idea. They said, you are absolutely nuts, but <laughs> you found a loophole in our law and you, yeah, it'll work. You, you can subdivide that land that was otherwise not subdividable. Amazing. And there was a lot of work left ahead. There was some there was a lot of, of sweat and difficulty and hardship and a few sleepless hours. But 13 months later, we were completely debt free. Paul, that's an amazing story. It's just yeah. an amazing story. And a fairly counterintuitive thought to feel I'm going to, I'm going to give my way out of this debt problem. So yeah, that's, that's a, maybe more of a, more that we can unpack uh, for this conversation, but yeah. I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about that. And that leads me to think about, you were starting to talk a little bit about rezoning of real estate. So I'm curious to hear about your experience 
as a real estate investor and ultimately lead us up to what your business looks like today and the type of activities you're involved with? Yeah. So starting in 2000, my buddy and I um, started flipping houses before flipping was a thing. Flipping only applied at the time to uh, pancakes, quarters, and birds. <laughs> and uh, yeah. But uh, no, seriously, we were doing fixer uppers and we did about 50 or 60. I think we counted over the years. And then we started uh, building houses and we did that. It's not really smart for somebody who doesn't know how to put their own doorknob on to build a house. Not, but, not a handyman, are you? No, not at all. Not at all. And uh, I have somebody p- take my trash out, you know? So anyway, but seriously, anyway, we, we, we did that. And then, um, then the, like I said, the, we, we flipped a whole bunch of waterfront lots. That's what got me into the trouble and got me out of the trouble in 2008. I see. But, um, anyway, uh, eventually did commercial real estate, uh, did a, a multifamily that was very successful in um, North Dakota. And then a Hyatt hotel I helped my friend with that was very unsuccessful. And, uh, and then I ended up in uh, class B value add multifamily. So that'd be large scale apartments. And then since then we've blossomed out from that to self storage and mobile home parks for a lot of reasons, including the fact that they're very, very recession resistant. Well, let's touch a little bit more on that. Uh, In a prior conversation, you and I had talked about storage and mobile homes, and you said a really interesting phrase, and that is trying to find recession-proof properties. So I'm interested for you to to tell us what what does that mean? First, maybe can you define for, for those of us, again, who are maybe in our 30s, we were in college or maybe just had graduated into the 2008 recession. So we haven't been uh, adults per se in the corporate world, raising families through recessions. Maybe first define for us what uh, recessions may or may not look like, and then explain why are those two sub-asset classes of interest for you? Yeah, so a recession technically is a contraction in gross domestic, the the growth of gross domestic product um, for over a a short period of time, and it becomes a depression when it's over a certain number of quarters. The actual recession itself, technically, from what I read from Howard Marks, who is a guy who wrote uh, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side, I highly recommend it. He said the actual recession itself technically only lasted 15 weeks. It was the actual fourth quarter, basically, plus a few weeks of um, 2008. But it was basically a contraction, but it left all... Part of the problem was the government in 1995 had decided that anybody who fogged a mirror should own a home. And so they made the standards. In fact, they enforced banks and mortgage company to loosen their standards and um, so basically, home ownership shot up from its historical norm of 63 to 64% in the US up to 69.2%. And then from 2005 to 2015, it crashed back down again from mm. 69 to 63%. Every percentage loss was a million people out of their house mm, and moving into the apartment world. Yeah. And so, uh, apartments generally did pretty well. In fact, while homes foreclosure rate on a local, in a local bank setting were up to 10% and on a national level, about 4%, I believe, foreclosures, uh, apartments, and this included some of the really high risk states like Nevada, Arizona, California, and Florida, apartments were only 0.4%. 
And since then, apartment foreclosures, and I mean like in the last seven or eight years, have been virtually zero nationally. And especially with Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, who do a great job underwriting these apartment deals. But um, at any rate, uh, apartments are fairly recession resistant. And I will say that uh, a lot of people, as a result, have jumped into apartments. And it's probably beyond the scope of our time. But I can tell you there's a lot of reasons apartments are overheated right now. So after chasing these apartment deals for years and coming up virtually empty, we bought some, we decided to expand into self-storage and mobile home parks. I'll tell you the reason they're recession resistant, self-storage, think about it, when people are downsizing in a recession uh, from a 4,000 to a 2,000 square foot home or from a 2,000 to an apartment, they need a place to store their stuff. And for only like $100, right? Yeah, they can keep their stuff. And it's a very small part of their income. And they're very sticky tenants as well, because if you raise their rate, if you raise an apartment rent by 6%, let's say someone's paying 1000 a month, and they that's 6%, 60 bucks a month, that's 720 bucks a year they're signing up for by re-signing that lease, they may move. But if you have a $100 storage unit on a month-to-month lease and you raise it by 6%, that's $6 a month, they probably are not going to take a Saturday, get their friends, pack up a U-Haul to move down the street in the heat to save (laughs) 6 bucks a month, especially when their perception is uh, they're going to move out in a few months anyway. So self-storage tenants are sticky. In good times, they're filling up their Walmart and their Amazon carts, and they need a place to store their stuff. Now, that's self-storage. Mobile home parks are similar. When people get downsized from a home to an apartment or apartment, occasionally to a mobile home, often the next step down is under a bridge. And most people can afford the average lot rent in the United States of only $280 a month. And So sometimes people by choice go there because they want to save that money. There are people in mobile home parks with BMWs because they love cars and they don't care about houses that much. (laughs) Um, But I'll tell you, this is amazing. Mobile home parks are the only asset class we know of that have a shrinking supply every year. There's about 100 eliminated nationwide, we believe, every year. Uh, and only about 10 built, but they have a shrinking supply, but an increasing demand. Check this out. About 60, uh, excuse me, 10,000 people turn 65 every day. Right. Only uh, four in 10, I believe, have over $10,000 saved for retirement. So a lot of the other six in 10 that have less than 10,000 saved for retirement do have home equity, and they're willing to trade that in to get a used mobile home and a lifestyle that they can sustain after mm. retirement with their $1,542 social security check. And so mobile home parks are very, very sticky. People yeah. aren't going to leave unless they really, really have to because they don't want to spend, you know, if you raise their rent $30, are they going to spend 5000 or in a double wide case, 10000 to move that mobile home? No way. Unlikely. And so, they're, the tenants are very sticky there. And so that makes it very recession resistant. Well, that, that's 
super fascinating. And I appreciate you helping explain not only the background on 2008, but also looking forward to explain the just the pure supply and demand dynamics between the sub-asset classes of apartment buildings and how that might be different from self-storage and then the mobile home parks. Of course, natural disclosures, you know, not necessarily that Paul and I are advocating for you, the listener, to go out there and do this on your own and whatnot. And certainly there are risks with it. So let me take a quick pause. You've talked also before, like somehow, you know, or similar to how you talked about earlier that investing is different than speculating. You mentioned that high risk doesn't always equal high returns. Tell us a little bit about what you mean, because from a finance 101 class, high risk in their definition means a higher return, but that might not always be the case. And then after we talk about that, I want to go into some of the differences for how listeners might think about their net worth and spreading that around between the pros and cons of stocks and bonds and real estate. Great. So naturally, when I say low risk leads to low return, if I said high risk, your mind would automatically fill in the blank, high return. It's not true. It's actually high risk leads to potentially high return, but at least equally potential high loss. And so again, it's back to that entrepreneur mindset. The entrepreneur always wants to look at the gain, but we should be evaluating the potential downturn and loss. Part of the problem here is you know how some people they think that they can and I I know so many people who have tried day trading or you know options trading or currency trading in their spare time. And I don't know if they're all a zero sum game, but it seems to me like most of them are and there are people with billions of dollars of resources and armies of Harvard and Stanford and MIT grads, they're probably going to beat you if you're in your pajamas watching TV and trying to do this on the side. I'm laughing. Yeah. I'm imagining somebody watching CNBC with their PJs on having a work from home day and uh, aspiring to be the, the next Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. And so Just like that, it's true with real estate as well. You know, HGTV, I I mean, I was on House Hunters once, it was fun, but HGTV and all these shows have convinced the world that they can go out and succeed at real estate. And a lot of people can. Somebody recently estimated that only 4% of people who try it actually succeed. I don't think it's that low, but I'll tell you this. You're competing, if you're doing real estate kind of casually, you're competing against people who are really, really smart and really, really diligent. I'll tell you, one of the operators my company invests with has a pipeline. They have four people working the phones full-time, eight hours a day, five days a week, calling operators. Yesterday, I heard about one where they had been calling an 87-year-old guy for uh, seven years. And so now he's 95. So I guess he was 88. Now he's 95. They've called him four to six times a year. And he finally this week said, yeah, I'm ready to sell. And I'll take the offer you made me two years ago, which is a much lower offer than they would have made now. And so he's 95 years old. You know, the casual observer, the weekend warrior's not going to get that deal. Yet the operator we're investing with is going to get such a great deal He's going to make such improvements, such, uh, and the commercial value formula alone, if we have time to get into that, I don't know if we will, but it 
it allows people, great operators, to force appreciation and create massive, and I mean literally massive, profits for themselves and their investors. I would rather get 80% of you know return, 80% of the full return, if you will, sharing it with that operator than get 100% of my own return. And so our company, Wellings Capital, exists to try to give people access to deals like this. That operator I'm telling you about, by the way, he's got documented 64% annual returns hmm. for the last several years. That's to the investors. That's certainly mind popping, especially in the context of stock and bonds. And again, for listeners, you know, there's uh, it's important to do due diligence and things of that nature. But I think one of the aspects of this that I find interesting and that needs there needs to be education on and some enlightening is explain to us the dynamics. You know, there's one one we. we one real estate investor that's a weekend warrior that's raising money uh, personally from his own savings or maybe a little bit of friends and family and buying a building outright in their name or in some just packaged LLC. And, that, and compare and contrast us, Paul, Paul, for us against working with an, an operator or a fund. How do the dynamics differ and what, are, what is somebody getting themselves into by working with a fund? Well, I mean, just by working with syndicators in general, basically, it means that you are doing, taking a lot of effort, if you're smart, to vet that syndicator or that operator. You're going to take a lot of effort to get to know them, look in their eyes, see the way they treat their employees, see the way they treat other investors, see how they treat the waiter, check out their background, do criminal checks, all this type stuff, and you get to know them. And then basically, you're sending them a check or a wire you're trusting them to fix the toilets. You're trusting them to find the deals. You're trusting them. And hopefully they've been doing it since way before the last recession and maybe even a couple recessions. They know what they're doing. A fund takes syndication and even goes to the next level. It spreads it out among a lot of different asset classes, potentially, operators, geographies, and deals. So that's what we do. We have 33 current assets in our fund and we are spreading out you know every investor's investment among all those 33 and uh, so even if a handful go bad and others are getting you know like that 64 percent 65 percent return like I mentioned overall it should turn out a lot better than if you just put all your eggs in one basket that's a great point. So I'm thinking back to what you said earlier in which all th investors need to ask three important questions. Run through those three again, because the last was, can you live with the downside? And, right. and, and I'm wondering, how does somebody who's starting to work with, uh, with a, a fund or an operator, you know, and that sort of thing, how do, how do you measure that? And how do they arm themselves with, with that type of information? Well, I mean, they want to do a lot of uh, hard work up front, vetting the operator, vetting the types of deals they do, vetting the type of debt. They probably, most people wouldn't know all these things. We have like a 24-point checklist. We want to see an operator and a deal, you know, adhere to. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, we want to make sure that everybody knows that there's risk. These aren't guaranteed returns. And there's some level of risk and people need to be prepared, as you've heard before, to lose some or all of their principal. And they shouldn't invest in, in any type of deal unless they're willing to do that. 
Talk to us about the timeframes too. And, and again, in the effort to compare and contrast, and maybe you can expand more on this. Certainly there's stock, there's pros and cons to investing in liquid stocks and bonds. And uh, there's pros and cons to investing in other asset classes like real estate. So the one thing that makes me think of is timeframe. I'm putting my certified financial planning cap on and talking with my clients about understanding their short, medium and long-term buckets of money. So, you know, as we're thinking about real estate, talk to us about time frame expectations and, uh, you know, what somebody is getting themselves into. Yeah. So think about a spectrum at one end of the spectrum. You've got stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things that are liquid. They have a huge benefit. And that is you can get in and get out quickly. And like they're very liquid. Now, Warren Buffett would say that's not necessarily a benefit. He said he wishes that people would make an investment, then that stock should not even be traded for like, what do he say, five or 10 years to allow it to grow and do its thing. So I don't know if that is a benefit to the average trader out there. If you're following Buffett, it might be a good, you know, to have that liquidity. But the, the downside to this end of the spectrum is, you know, they, they're vulnerable to a CEO scandal or the bad mood on Wall Street, or the war in the Middle East. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got real estate, and it's got a liquidity tax, if you will. You've got to pay the penalty of being illiquid for maybe three, five, seven, maybe even 10 years. But what you get for that is you get transparency, you get a real clarity from the operating level at the property, all the way up through the distributions you get, you can see, oh yeah, they raise their rates, they cut their costs, and I got a 30% uh, return. You can see clearly what that return is derived based on. It's not you know, muddled through all the, some of the things that are really, really hard for us average investors to unpack you know, that you would get on a 10K or whatever. So that's the spectrum I'm thinking, but you're paying the price. You have to be willing to lock your money up for a lot of years to get these type of returns and the incredible tax benefits that come with commercial real estate investing as well. That's great. One one other topic, I'm moving to thinking again about your show in light of uh, how to lose money is knowing when to, let's say, when when to quit essentially. And uh, maybe this is for uh, you know, the, the the real estate investor or the fund, you know, at what, what point does somebody look at a deal or, um, you know, even an investment that they're already in and know when to switch gears with after some period of time? I'm uh, writing a letter to some friends. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to uh, write a letter to some investors and friends about one investment that's not going as well as others. And I'm actually quoting Buffett again today. He, he said, um, when you find yourself in a perpetually leaky boat, your efforts and resources are often better spent finding a new boat rather than continually patching holes. And so there's a sense where perhaps there, there's a time when, when you're in that situation when you might want to look for a new boat. One of the hardest things we've faced on our How to Lose Money podcast is two of the big lessons learned. Listen to how strange this is. Number one lesson that people tell us is never, ever, ever, ever give up. If I would have quit 
in December of 2007. I had no idea that there was an answer in January 2008 that changed everything. If I would have quit, I would never have found that. And then another lesson we hear from other people on how to lose money, you know where I'm going, and that is you got to know when to cut your losses quickly and run. Don't right. keep persisting with a bad deal. Well, how do you know which? How do you know? know. Yeah. And how do you reconcile those two pieces of advice? Because I imagine those two different personalities that are sharing that believe wholeheartedly in what they're saying. On the one hand, it's, yeah, it's fight hard and never give up. On the other hand, it's cut your losses and know when you have a leaky boat, know when to get a new boat. So what have you learned in speaking with these people on your show of how to reconcile? You know, there's a mystery involved in all of life, John, and and that's one of those times when there's mystery. And um, basically, we believe that's where wisdom comes in. Mm -hmm. Wisdom comes from years of learning to listen to your gut, learning to uh, get wise counsel. That's why one of the reasons I do meditation and things like that in the morning, just journaling, things like that. Wisdom comes from all those type of things. And so the only answer I have is that you need to get and apply wisdom. Well, having you on this show is a form of wisdom. I took a lot away from this, and there's so much more that uh, we can dig into. We may have to save that for another time. But you know, we talked about so much, the difference between investing and speculating. We talked about the three different things investors need to know and understand before they get into a deal and some of the pros and cons with stocks and bonds versus real estate. So Paul, I really appreciate you coming to chat with us today. For our listeners, tell us if they're interested to learn more about you or your company, how can they get in touch with you and what's your what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, so you can check us out at wellingscapital.com. That's W E L L I N G S. C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. You can email us info at wellingscapital.com. Super. Paul, thanks so much for your time. Hope you have a great day. Thanks, John. It's been great being here. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.